0: He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. I'm Siddhartha Vaidyanathan, at Sidvi on Twitter. And today I'm joined uh, by a guest from Dunedin in New Zealand. Uh, that's not a place that we've got a guest from before. So welcome to the show, Michael Wagoner.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah, so Michael is Michael um, cool on Twitter, which is uh, M-Y-K-U-H-L, at Michael. And he's a freelance uh, cricket writer and statistician. He contributes regularly to First Post, the website, and uh, I'll be linking uh, some of his articles and I'll also link his Twitter handle. So please follow him there. He's a, a wonderful Resource for New Zealand cricket has a lot of very interesting thoughts on what I think, and I may be uh, taking the cliche up a notch here, but what I think is the most underrated team in the history of underrated teams of New Zealand. So (laughs) um, we're here to talk about um, the New Zealand test team specifically, and uh, I want to focus on the last uh, three years or so since um, Kane Williamson took over the captaincy. New Zealand have had um, have uh, basically, apart from that one series against South Africa at home that they lost 1-0 and that they could have actually drawn had it not been for rain, they came really close to winning a test. Uh, apart from that, they have been undefeated in tests since um, um, November 2016 and... Uh, this is uh, one of the most important um, months for them i think they've had just had a series against england we're recording the day after the series against england finished which they won 1-0 and uh, they now are off to australia for three tests and then they play india at home two tests so they have a formidable challenge ahead and uh, so michael what tell us a bit about the england series i did see uh, read your review on first post and um, it was pretty, it was comprehensive. But um, the kind of uh, cricket that it produced, uh, largely attritional. W- was it a bit off-putting or uh, were you uh, okay with it?
1: A, a bit of both. <laughs> um, it was, it, it had mom- hours of quite intense, quite interesting cricket. And there was a real sort of chess match sort of feel to some of it in terms of, um the bowlers were trying to make the batsmen take risks and the batsmen were trying not to give in to their nature to take risks. And, and the result of it is there was that sort of um, both waiting for the other to flinch. Um, a little bit like when you watch a a heavy mat, heavyweight boxing match where there's two really good fighters and it seems like they spend 10 rounds without actually punching each other. They spend the whole time just pretending to and looking for a weakness and not finding it. There was a little bit of that in there, which you have to be a bit of a purist to appreciate. And I think that was a, that was a bit disappointing that the, the, the pitchers produced that sort of cricket. Um, but it, it was nice to see a different style to what we used to. And as long as it only happens a couple of matches every, every few years, it's great. Um, but uh, it wouldn't be nice if that was what we got a lot of.
0: I was listening to um, the NZ Radio Sport commentary for a while and uh, they were having a discussion about it. And one of the commentators, in fact, wondered if New Zealand had uh, ordered these pitches because um, they know that they have the bowling attack to uh, get 20 wickets on any surface and uh, they ordered it to neutralise England. Do you think there's any uh, credence to that? Uh,
1: I, I think there is, but I think probably more so this was a series organised between the two boards before two pretty significant tours. So New Zealand going to South New Zealand going to Australia and uh, England going to South Africa. And we know that in Australia and South Africa, you know, you've got to work for your wickets there. the, the pitches are, are bouncy and there's not much. By the way, there's a little bit of sideways movement on some of the South African pitches, but there's not likely to be when England play. Um, you know, so. I wonder whether or not the instructions or the agreement had been made between the boards that we're going to make sure these these pitches. You've got to work hard for the wickets, and it's going to be a um, it's going to be that sort of pitch. And I wonder if that was actually part of the preparation for the the upcoming series. It was interesting that New Zealand picked a squad for these matches and Australia before these matches started, so the, these were considered warm ups for the Australia series. And I wonder if part of it was that the in, in New Zealand, before Christmas, generally pitches are very lively and difficult to bet on. To the point that um, some teams actually keep separate stats. Some clubs keep separate stats for matches before Christmas and after Christmas. So being played in November, December, you'd normally expect. And, and in, in the past, the, the matches that have been played in this, this time of year of you know 150 as a team score is is not unheard of. Um, and 200 or well, 250 is is a winning score uh, for a for a team, not for an individual. So uh, the the pitches were certainly not what we'd expect this time of year in New Zealand. And so I, I wonder whether or not part of it was um, part of it was actually an agreement between the teams. But I also wonder if it was a fear that the matches turn into a bit of a lottery when you've got a really green pitch and the and the toss takes a big account. And we looked at it thought, we've got a better team than England at the moment. Let's take the lottery out of it and let's see whether or not they're good enough to beat us in these conditions. And, and
0: Yeah, okay. So uh, having said that, um, and uh, can you talk about, um, and, and some of our listeners have asked uh, this as well, about the pitches in New Zealand, specifically over the last two or three years. I, um, of course, I have uh, seen the scorecards, but uh, having seen the games... Uh, Do you think that um, there has been a change in terms of the uh, composition and in terms of the manner in which they've been playing? Or is this just, uh, you know, occasionally these aberrations that just keep popping up?
1: Well, I I think the pitches have got a little bit better. Interestingly, it's actually because I've been putting a little more grass on them at the start uh, rather than less grass. And what's happened is that grass, as the pitch goes on, flattens out, and um, the, the pitches become a little bit easy to bat on. The the, the bounce becomes quite true. Um, so by putting a little bit more grass to get to make sure you get a result, you end up with getting sort of the, the third innings becomes quite easy to bat on. Um, but there, there haven't been a huge number of draws. And certainly I don't think there's been any non-weather influence draws in New Zealand for a, quite a while. Uh, so while the scores have gone up, there's still been plenty of wickets falling. Um, you know, the um, – the, but, but by trying to put a, f- a little bit more grass on at the start to get the, the early wickets, it has meant that, you know, the, the games have – the pitches have flattened out a little bit. One thing I noticed a couple of years ago, and I, and I think this is still the case, is that if there's less than 12 wickets fall before lunch on day two in New Zealand, the game's almost, always a draw if you look back through, through the past. Um, and, in, and, and so you do need the grassy pitches early on because there's not the same heat uh, and the pitches don't deteriorate as much with the, with the combination of the moisture and the lack of heat. Uh, the pitches don't deteriorate, so you've got to take the wickets early on rather than rely on it happening at the end of the match.
0: So it's almost like the reverse of uh, what you would think a traditional test match pitch would play like
1: yeah well in most countries, the easiest time to bat is the second innings and the hardest is the fourth innings in New Zealand. the easiest time to bat is the third innings, and the hardest is the first innings so it's basically you if you flip the averages around and flip the the, the scores around the the first innings, second innings the averages look about the same if you flip them around if you look at them the same way the same way as normal it 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 looks like an aberration
0: okay interesting, very interesting because um yeah the uh, sort of the easy trap to fall into is to look at batting averages. And if you see a batsman, uh, uh, an overseas batsman, I'm saying average really well in New Zealand to assume that he is technically, uh, you know, uh, superior than say a batsman who averages uh, very high in Asia. But, you know, it's all, it's also very context specific. It also depends on when he scored those runs in which innings and also against whom, Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, absolutely. I think. Um, but I, I think if someone manages to score runs in the first innings in New Zealand, um, you've got to have a pretty good technique for that. Scoring them in the third innings, mm, not quite, not quite such a an issue. Similar to a batsman that scores in the in the first or second innings in Asia, perhaps doesn't say as much as someone who does it in the fourth innings. Yeah. You know, someone who scores a fourth innings hundred chasing in Asia, that's a quality player.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to keep a. I'm going to do a quick search after this chat on uh, put in India and New Zealand, or put India, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, uh, UAE, and see who has the top averages. Just to just for my own curiosity. <laughs> but um, um, moving on to this batting lineup, though, and um, if you see uh, again, I'm talking about during the time when Kane Williamson's taken over the captaincy, they have been scoring. At a really good rate, though I mean they've been putting on big scores they've the runs have been coming from all all through the order, and they bat deep and uh, would you say this is one of uh, the most balanced and perhaps the best batting lineup that New Zealand has seen in a while or maybe ever?
1: <laughs> look there's no perhaps um, since <laughs> since Brendan McCullum took over. Um, New Zealand has scored almost like 30% of our 400-plus scores, I think, have happened in the last five or six years. Um, you know, it's it, since, well, since, uh, seven years, since 2013, so six years. Um, something like 30% of our 400-plus team scores have happened in that time. Um, and it's, it, there's a couple of factors in there. Uh, the part of it is, is the pitches have changed a little bit. Um, but part of it is also that there's been a change in focus on the batting and coaching role. Um, Craig McMillan came in and, and quite revolutionised the way that they did batting coaching, he, he didn't really care about technique um, you know, he's said players sort out their own technique, he works on decision making and on looking at you know how players actually decide which shots to play because if you're playing the right shot it doesn't really matter too much about your technique, whereas if you're playing the wrong shot with the right technique, you're still going to get out and so he worked a lot on decision making and we, Especially considering that when he was playing, he'd been the sort of the poster boy for bad decision making. It was a, quite a surprise, but um, but it's, it really has worked. I mean, you look since, since November 2016, New Zealand's got the the best batting average of any team in the world. Um, you know, and our since uh, since McMillan took over or during McMillan's reign, New Zealand had the highest average uh, batting average in the top seven of any team. And if you look at the the similar period before he took over, New Zealand had the lowest apart from Zimbabwe of any team. So it, there, there was a, a significant shift when the change of focus and how, we, how to coach um, the batting happened. Now, that also probably lines up with the change, some changes in the domestic cricket in New Zealand. That, you know, nothing works in isolation, but I think that Craig McMillan was, um, and, and I, was, I was critical of his selection, but it turned out I think that was a really good call, and getting him in has really worked.
0: And uh, they now, I mean, the coaching has changed. Right? The, Peter Fulton's the batting coach, right now?
1: Yeah, so that, that's, that's happened recently. And it'll be interesting to see if he can maintain what McMillan, you know, the, the McMillan-Hesson combination where Hessen was the technician and McMillan was just working on decision-making. I, I, I don't know how that dynamic works with Stephen Fulton. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that, if that continues um to to be the same sort of fruit but it's it started pretty well
0: yeah and in terms of continuity uh the team, the team has been uh largely i mean the core has been the same But even overall if you look through the tests in the last uh three or four years the there's hardly been that many changes right and uh you know the, there've been uh, batsmen who have had a good lo- a good long run in there and it's almost like uh, the the team now as a great chemistry going where even if they're in trouble, they know exactly the kind of uh, people who are going to bail them out.
1: Yeah, the, 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 there's that. And I think the continuity has really paid dividends too. Um, that, you know, people are given a chance to find their feet and, and there used to be a case of, there was a whole lot of players that played one test or two tests. Um, the only players that that's happening with now are play, players that are coming in as injury replacements, or players who um, you know, are specialists for a particular condition, so like uh, Will Somerville is is being used just on pitches that are going to spin. Um, you know, it, it, in general, uh, players are given a long time to develop. Um, and you know, you saw Henry Nichols at the start. You sort of thought, "What's what's he doing there? He he doesn't belong." Uh, whereas over the last uh, last two years, you you certainly wouldn't say that. Um, but his his first year and a half you looked at him and you thought he he just doesn't look like a test player now he's one of the best batsmen in the world Um, he was given a chance to actually develop as a test player and because of that he's now pretty much undroppable unless he has a a really big run of outs because he's been doing so well Um, and I think the continuity has really helped
0: yeah the undroppable bit is very interesting I mean in this team that played against England I mean apart from the opener Ravel I think uh, you really can't drop anyone else. I mean, Trent Bolt was injured, but had he been fit, and if everyone is fit, then ten of them pick themselves, and then I guess you go with Ravel because of continuity, or you want to give him that certain leeway and that he's good at, at in certain conditions against certain bowlers, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I thought it was really interesting watching Jeep Raval and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he goes. He tends to struggle on slower pitches and against spin and medium pace. Now, that's that's probably not going to be a problem in Australia. <laughs> You're not going to get many many medium <laughs> paces bowling on slow pitches there. So he may well go really well in in those conditions. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch him. But um, yeah, he he certainly is someone who you might look at and say he may become a specialist for for quick tracks and maybe. Um, uh, Hamish Rutherford, who's the, the exact opposite, struggles on a quick track, but dominates medium pace and, and on slow pitches, maybe that, that it's almost worth the horses for course of selection and just picking whichever one of them is going to fit that particular pitch. Um, but that's, that's not really how New Zealand cricket's been going. They've been showing faith in players and, and it's been working, so it's hard to criticise.
0: And, uh, you know, there cannot be any question about the other opener, Tom Latham, who is perhaps... Uh, one of the best batsmen in the world. Again, I mean, after we said that about Nichols, but um, Tom Latham is perhaps even is even doing even better, especially as an opener, especially in the bowling age.
1: Yeah, well, and a, and an opener in New Zealand traditionally is a pretty hard job, you know. The the um, we we haven't got many openers who average over thirty five historically. Uh, it's you know the ball does move around early on New Zealand pitches. So, I mean, didn't much in this test, but even still, the first 10, 15 overs were difficult. Um, you know, he's got the ability. That the thing that he really has is that he has played a lot as a middle order, as a middle order player, and he's strong against spin and can score relatively quickly against spinners. Rather and and doesn't really get tied down. Whereas a lot of openers, you know, they see off the new ball and then they get a bit lost. Um, he's the opposite. It, if he manages to see off the new ball, he, you know, you're going to struggle to get him out. I, I think, I don't know if this is still the case, but he had a better average than Steve Smith once he got to 50. So so when he got to 50 and when, when Smith got to 50, Smith does it more often, once he gets there, he actually goes on to score bigger scores on average. So that's quite something.
0: Definitely. And I also saw... Uh, tweet of yours, which uh, ended up becoming quite popular about uh, uh, Martin Crowe and Tom Latham about how before they turned 28, uh, Crowe had 3,384 runs at 44.52. I'm just reading out the tweet. And Tom Latham, who's almost 28, has more, more runs at a higher average and with the same number of centuries. And I did notice that um, a lot of replies to that fell into the classic uh, trap of saying bowlers were the Martin Crow faced better bowlers, even though the last two or three years, we probably had some of the best bowling attacks going around.
1: Yeah. yeah. Look, (laughs) I I think it's really easy to be nostalgic because you only remember the highlights. (laughs) You remember those great deliveries and you remember those stunning spells and so you you think that the bowling was better back in the day, but you look at the bowlers that that Crow faced the most you know and it was Craig McDermott and Philip De Freitas. and I'm I'm not wanting to talk down about those two gentlemen. they were both very good bowlers, but they weren't perhaps they, they were if they were playing now they probably wouldn't be first picks for either of their teams uh, and yet they were the standout bowler for for each of their teams in that era um, so so the 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 idea that the bowling is so much better now then than it used to be, i I just think is is, is we remember the highlights rather than remember the the uh, the reality.
0: Yeah, and the fact is that uh, you know if any, I mean if you've followed cricket over the last uh, two or three years even, at least that uh, it should be tempered with the fact that every uh, the batting averages have considerably. Drop. It's much harder to make runs, and I think uh, 2018 was comparable to 50 years ago, or something, where it, among the lowest uh, averages of all years. So, yeah, Tom Tom Latham is, I think, a cricketer that we should be hearing a lot more about, and uh, hope uh, hopefully he in, in with performances against Australia and India. Hopefully, he finds a way to you know come into the forefront in terms of well, well, uh, being.
1: I mean, that's the criticism of Latham is that he's often, um, he's been a bit of a bully. You know, he's got his centuries against Zimbabwe and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Um, you know, he he hasn't really done it against the big boys. Um, and so, you know, his last couple of ones, you know, scoring a century against England... On a on a pitch, there, you know, the Mount McGonagall pitch got a little bit of grief, but it was really only because people were lumping it in with Hamilton. There, there was that wasn't a particularly easy pitch to bat on, um, and and the fact is that he um, that, that he that he's although his century was in Hamilton, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but um, you know the, um, the the fact is he still scored those runs against the top team and. And if he can do it against England and India, if he can do it against Australia and India, uh, then it, that criticism disappears. Uh,
0: didn't he also have a big, uh, big score in Sri Lanka or Pakistan? One of them?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think against both of them, actually. Um just. Yeah, I, I think he he scored one in UAE and one in New Zealand against Pakistan from memory.
0: Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, New Zealand, this, um, um, New New Zealand have played a lot at home, uh, but I think uh, the tours to UAE and Sri Lanka are extremely, extremely good performances. I mean, uh, especially UAE. I mean, it's very, very tough to win there. And they went there and won two tests there, leave alone one. They won the series 2-1 and then uh, went to Sri Lanka and drew the series 1-1. So, Really, really uh, good performances, both.
1: And I've got to say, we're desperately unlucky to lose that first test. You know, the, um, New Zealand were in a position where there were probably 80% chance of winning it, and then a very good partnership from Sri Lanka, as they have done a few times recently, um, turned the game around. Um, so I, I think New Zealand were, uh, were desperately unlucky to not win that series 2-0. Uh, and uh, I think if, if we had, it would probably be... You know, there would be a lot more talk about this team, um, but it's uh, in saying that I think we were quite lucky in UAE to win uh, the first test. Where you know it was, it's one of those things. Sometimes, sometimes the best team wins, and sometimes they don't. But if you're the best team, often enough, you'll win more than you lose. Um, and and I think New Zealand is starting to be the best team quite often.
0: Yeah, that that first test, by the way, which New Zealand won by four runs, uh, is perhaps the test of. 2019
1: Uh, (laughs) I mean it was a stunning test
0: it's one of the one of
1: the the better ones I've I've ever watched
0: and wasn't that uh, the debut for Ajaz Patel the left arm spinner
1: yeah yeah that's right
0: wow yeah Um, that was some performance on debut when (laughs) and then he gets through the last wicket as well and wins them the game that was some test
1: yeah, and, um, and I mean, I think he's a, an example of what's happening in New Zealand cricket at the moment. With uh, the, We went to a double round of the Plunkett Shield. So rather than everyone playing everyone once, everyone played everyone twice. Uh, and the result of that is it gave enough time for people to actually show what they could do. And, and a little bit more time to play the sort of higher level matches. And we started to see some players um, putting their hands up. And, yeah, he's he's one of them. He's had a couple of outstanding seasons. And so we, when we threw him the ball, we knew that he could actually perform. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, now that the the batting coaches have all had a chance to watch him and people have done their scouting on him, whether or not he continues to be as successful or if, if people know some of his tricks and some of the, the things he can do and, and it will, you know, it will he'll be less effective. Um, but, I mean, you're seeing now Will Somerville came in and, and was successful immediately. Um, a lot of players now can will step up and, and immediately look at home at Test Level, whereas that had never been the case before. Mitchell, first game playing, you know, it looked completely at home. And we're now picking players that have got a, a lot of first-class experience where it used to be not unheard of for someone to get picked after five or six matches.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you uh, can... Uh, come to it, but now that we're talking about the spinners, uh, New Zealand have, you know, uh, rich, riches in that department now. I mean, not a not a team that uh, you often associated with having so many spinners, but with Ajaz and uh, Will Somerville coming in and doing well, is always the option, especially with his batting. And then you have Ish Sodhi, who is a very good spinner who never gets a chance because of all these other players in there. Yep.
1: And the guy who I think is probably the best of them all is Todd Astle, um, you know, who's oh, yes. who's going to be who I, I would say is probably going to be playing in Australia. I think they'll they'll make that change and he'll play ahead of Sivertner. But I'm I'm not very good at picking what the New Zealand selectors are going to do, so they probably won't. Um, <laughs> but um, but he um, he has um, uh, he's got some extraordinary figures uh, and an ability to uh, produce he bowls some rubbish but he bowls some magic deliveries amongst it and um, if he can remove some of that rubbish he could be an absolute world class um, bowler as well um, sodi's similar but doesn't have the he's got more tricks but doesn't tend to his, his good deliveries aren't quite as good as Todd Astor's um, so it, you know, we've got we've got an awful lot of depth in spin bowling uh, we've got Depth and pace bowling. There's, there would never have been a time in New Zealand's history that Lockie Ferguson would have been sitting on the sideline this long. You know, he's um, he's got a first-class record that uh, certainly over the last three or four years. That's you've got to go back to uh, Richard Hadley to find another player with a, a similar record to that. And yet he hasn't even been given a single test. You know, um, it, it's it, it's it's breathtaking the, the depth that we've managed to build. Um, from a point where we were, it wasn't that long ago that we were we were looking around and, and thinking, well, we've got six or seven test quality players, and who else are going to make up the squad? Uh,
0: so, I mean, that's um, again uh, another storyline that keeps coming up with New Zealand, right? That they have a that you have a limited pool to pick from. But uh, has there, do you think that's just uh, a cliche, or has there always been depth, or is this? particular era uh, you know quite pronounced when it comes to the depth that New Zealand have been able to get
1: I think we've always well always we've, we've normally had bowlers that are competitive I mean um, but we haven't always had good batsmen in fact we've got good batsmen as well as a is a nice bonus but I think our bowlers the standard has risen as well and I think the the double round of the Plunkett shield has made a big difference to that Um, I, it's a real pity that New Zealand cricket have had to, to to cut costs and and cut that down to only having eight matches instead of 10 um and uh and, and I I believe there's a new broadcasting deal that's just been signed and that hopefully that'll allow enough money to to go back to having 10 rounds the plank of the Plunket Shield because I think it's been a, a a very significant thing in the development of the, of the players um but yeah I, I think we've we've actually always had pretty good quick bowlers, you can go through um, through our history and we've always had some, or, or, or fast, medium, we've always had some good ones. One thing that did happen is that they noticed that one particular region or two regions were producing most of the quick bowlers in the country. Um, and uh, there's a small area sort of south of Auckland known as counties. Um, and you've got Chris Martin, Simon Dole, Daryl Tuffy, Uh, Ian Butler, Brent Arnell, and a few others all came from this one little area that's got maybe 20,000 people living in it. Um, And so one of the things that they've done is they've dug up the dirt there and shipped it around the country, and now a lot of the cricket grounds around New Zealand have got Padamahoe clay in it. Um, And that has made a big difference, getting a bit more bounce and and a bit more for the fast bowlers to work with. Um, That seems to have helped
0: the cricket as well. Very interesting uh and uh <laughs> I think uh it's something that other other teams and other countries should look at as well because this is a great way to encourage uh bowlers coming in from all around the country uh, in terms of uh series itself i mean New Zealand are again um, one of the teams that go for a long time without playing. Uh, series. I mean, I think before that Pakistan series that happened in the end of 2018. I'm sorry, my mistake when I said it's the best test of 2019. But that before that they had a seven-month break, and then they go through this long break. How do uh, you know? How does a team uh, cope with that? And how do they then come out and play like a really short series? Usually they play two two tests, sometimes three. But how do they play those really short series with that intensity. Any inputs on that?
1: Well, I, I think when that's what you're used to, that's what you're used to. You know, <laughs> it, it, um, if that's all you get, that's you develop uh, the ways of, of dealing with that. And uh, some of it is they've set up uh, some sort of high performance centres. One of them in Lincoln and in Christchurch, where there's a, just out of Christchurch, where they have a whole lot of different pitches, soils from different parts of the world, so they can get similar sort of conditions to different countries. And they uh, have, um, I think they were saying they'd set up a big marquee over them so the, the players could run in and bowl when they had gas heaters heating it up so in the middle of the winter they could still be bowling as if it was in 30 degrees, um, which I can tell you, Lincoln, Central Christ, Central Central Canterbury is not 30 degrees in the middle of winter. Um, they could they could run in and experience bowling in the heat and getting used to it. Um, that sort of thing helps, um, but but some of those gaps are because there's other things happening too. It's not always because New Zealand's not playing. Uh, sometimes there are players off uh, playing in, in other leagues and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, New Zealand cricket has been very keen, I guess, to embrace the IPL and to br- embrace some of the, the CPL and different competitions and, and encourage the players to play in them um, because it's a way of increasing the players' incomes. Um, which means that we get those players to play longer without going freelance.
0: Interesting. But New Zealand themselves don't have a really high-profile T20 tournament. And I was reading recently that this was a conscious decision they made to um, you know, not expend too much and rather conserve both the financial as well as other resources so that they can focus it on something else. So has that in a way had a knock-on effect on the depth that we were talking about earlier and with, uh, you know, the number of uh, test quality players coming through or has it just been uh, un- unrelated to that?
1: I, I, I'm i not sure about that. Um, I was part of, before I was a, a cricket writer, actually, I got part of a, um, a, a focus group, New Zealand Cricket, put together uh, of people that were interested in domestic cricket, they just basically went through anyone that had bought a ticket to a domestic cricket game and invited them along to talk about it and about um, how to um, how to how to you know what sort of priorities we had. And they were asking questions like, would you rather have the, the the international team playing no matches during the peak time of the season, so that the the international players were playing in the domestic competition, or would you rather have the domestic competition moved out of the peak time? Or would you want to have them both at the same time? And so, you, know, you think about that. there seems like an obvious answer until you actually think about it. And there is there's good and bad that, that's about all three answers. Um, and so, you, you know, I, I, there is a really tricky balance in trying to promote domestic cricket, but still knowing that the money comes from internationals. So that you know, I I, I think the um, the the, the the focus on not having a franchise based competition is partially also to to give an opportunity for some revenue for the uh for the the four major or the six major associations um, i i don't think it's had a big impact on the on the quality of international players because one of the things that 's happened now is that all of the teams have got five or six internationals from the uh the rotation policy that New Zealand used in the t20 internationals so lots of players have had a chance to to play in the international setup, get coached by the top coaches, and then go back to their teams, and and that seems to have made a difference.
0: Interesting. So um, going back to the players, uh, one player that I really really want to talk about is uh, B.J. Watling. Uh, you you have written about him, and uh, there he he constantly you know comes up in discussion, but. Um, can you can you tell us a bit more about him, and uh, what do you think he does that really really makes him uh, the best? Uh, I would say okay, let let me add the word perhaps perhaps the best keeper batsman in the world. But I think the best. Especially uh, the interesting bit is that he didn't begin as a keeper, right?
1: No, well, he played his very first game, a first class cricket, as a keeper. Okay. And then that was it for a long time. He played one other match as a keeper and then he got picked for New Zealand as a keeper for a T20 match. And everyone wow. was like, well, can, he, can he actually keep? And, <laughs> and someone had noticed him playing in a club match uh, as a keeper and, and said, well, he's, he's actually not too bad. We should give him a try. Um, and that one T20 match then led to him um, getting the gloves for a, a couple of games and, and going on to to be our first-choice test keeper. Um uh, yeah, but, but he was a batsman, and when he played as a batsman, he didn't do quite as well as he has as a keeper, uh, which is, is very unusual. Not many players have a better average as a keeper than not as a keeper. Andy Flower did, but that was more because he played as a specialist batsman when he was older. Um, but but he, you know, Watling actually does much better when he's got the gloves. And, it, you know, you wonder if it's if it's – the fact that he maybe switch on, switch off, he focuses on one thing and he's not having to think about his batting the whole time. He's thinking about his keeping and then he just thinks of so focus on the batting when he's batting. Um, but the thing that, that I love about B.J. Watling is that, um, you know, and there's, there's a cliche, but it's actually true. He's a man for a crisis. When he, when, um, when he comes in with the score at sort of 240 for four or, or better than that, he averages about 30. Uh, but when he comes in with it worse than 244, he averages close to 50. So when he comes in, the team's in a little bit of trouble. That's when he steps up and performs. And, you know, as uh, you know, that's the sort of player that every coach would want. Someone who, who, you know, if you're in trouble, they'll dig you out of it. And if you're not, well, he's not going to hang around very long. <laughs> um, you know, the, um, he really has the... And, and I guess de Grondheim's the opposite. You know, if de Grondheim comes in and we're in a good position, he, that's when he's... Um, that's when he's just dynamic and, and unstoppable. But if we're in trouble, he's probably not the guy you want to send in. So having both of them in the team together is pretty handy. Um, but, I mean, he just enjoys batting time. He limits his game to only a few shots and just plays the shots that he knows he can play well. And he has a phenomenal defensive game. Um, you'll watch him edge balls every game. He'll edge two or three deliveries and they'll bounce in front of the slips or in front of the keeper. And it's because he has really, really soft hand. You know, if he's not trying to hit it, the ball's not going anywhere. Um, and, um, and that defensive game has allowed him to really, when he's deciding that when he's in that mode, it's very hard to get out.
0: Interesting about the sound as well, because uh, for somebody who uh, didn't uh, keep for a long stretch and who was picked as a batsman, he's such a natural uh, keeper. And the, and the ball... The sound that the ball makes when he collects it with his glove itself is, is so... I mean, it's not like several other keepers where you can actually hear the ball. There's, there's, it's, it's almost like that dying sound that a perfect keeper would love when he takes the ball. And his positioning is so perfect. Uh, where, how did he learn to become such a good keeper?
1: Well, he actually wasn't a great keeper when he started keeping for New Zealand. Um, it's something that has developed and he was, a—he was uh, I mean, he was adequate. He was probably a little better than adequate in that West Indies tour when he first started. Um, you know, you sort of, you looked at him and you wondered, are New Zealand making a mistake picking a guy who's only a part-timer as the keeper? Uh, but he's really worked on that and developed that game. And I'm not sure who he's had coaching him. I think Luke Ronke did a bit of that um but he's he's become a magnificent keeper and his his footwork is so good that he 's just in position he is often he takes catches that other keepers would die for and and he's just he's just walked to it and picked it up because he's already moving his feet so well um and that's the uh, that's the thing that i um the the, it, the the difficult thing with keeping is that the more dramatic someone is often the worse the keeper they are the the big dives and the and the, the the giant lunges to grab the ball, and they take the spectacular catches, means that they've they've often put themselves in a position where they've had to do that by not being in the right place to start with. Whereas the guys that take the ball without you noticing it, those are the really good keepers. And Watling's one of those. He's got a he picks up you know two catches and in innings roughly, which is you know a, a really really high number of catches. And yeah, swing bowlers help with that. Um, but he he does it without you noticing him, um, which is, yeah, he's just, in, he's just in the right place. And you saw in that uh, first test, he picked up a catcher. He was actually standing directly in front of Ross Taylor when he caught it, with Ross Taylor at a fairly wide first slip. Um, but his footwork was just so good. And he he didn't dive for it. He didn't need to. He, he just moved over there and, and took the ball. Um, and, and that's, I guess, what makes him such a good keeper is he's got really good footwork.
0: Yeah, I think... Um... I would classify him as um, an unYouTubeable cricketer uh, because yeah. uh, he doesn't take the spectacular catches because he's so good that he gets to into position to take to make them look easy. And yeah. even with his batting, uh, you know, his his strength lies in the stuff, the things that you spoke about, like his extremely soft hands, his um, magnificent technique, and his defensive style and his patience that it's hard to then make a YouTube clip of five minutes to show uh, oh well, how spectacular he is, but he yeah. is because he is not.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's the fact that he manages to play within himself and hold himself back from playing the stuff that you get you on YouTube that actually makes him so good.
0: The other cricketer that you touched upon, but who uh, I saw his stat, I think you might have even tweeted that, which I saw, is Colin de Grondom, who's averaging more than 40 with the bat and less than 30 with the ball. Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> you're looking at, at Aubrey Faulkner and Colin de Grandhomme are the only two guys in history that have taken more than two wickets a match for more than five matches and and uh, averaged over forty with the bat and under thirty with the ball. That you wouldn't, I mean, a lot of people. Aubrey Faulkner, yes, yeah, it was the number, the only guy that's, I think, the only guy that's been both number one with the bat and number one with the ball in the ICC rankings um you know phenomenal around the Colin de Grandhomme putting him in that same category is it's hard <laughs> to do. Um you know, it's it's hard to see it. And I think one of the things with De Grandhomme is is that he doesn't look like he should be a good test bowler or a good test batsman. You know, you look at him and you think that guy's never going to be able to make it. But I, I think you know, a lot of people said that about Gordon Greenwich and the Richards as well. And they turned out alright. Um you know, so sometimes Sometimes having a technique that you know and that works for you is all that you really need. Um, one other thing with the ball, he just does enough. And I remember hearing Richard Hadley say at one point, he said, all you need to do is move the ball, the the, the distance from the centre of the bat to the edge of it. That's all the distance you need to move. If you move it any more than that, you're just going to play a miss or the batsman will adjust for it. If you move it just the distance from the centre of the edge, that's when you get the wickets. And, and he does that. You know, He, he moves it just enough that, um, that the batsman doesn't adjust for it and gets out. Um, and he does it at such a pedestrian-looking pace that you think, surely a top batsman isn't going to get out to that, but they do, and they just keep getting out to it. You, you look at it and you scratch your head as to, as they, you know, he look, it, it's, it's incredible that someone that looks so innocuous can be so effective, but he really can be.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, in many ways, even though they seem uh, vastly uh, different, Colin DeGrandome has a lot uh, in common with uh, Ravindra Jadeja. Uh, Jadeja is, also, is a spinner who just turns it enough to get the edge. He's extremely disciplined. He can bowl long stretches. I think when he comes in with a bat, he can really push it along. He can accelerate. He can give you that quick uh, impetus. And I think they're similar in many ways, though DeGrandome looks innocuous. And in fact, Michael Atherton had written a piece In one of his match reports, he had said a cricketer like that may never have got into an England 11. And he's he's probably right because, uh, you know, it's like the typical English county pro who would, um, you know, give you a bit with the ball, give you a bit with the bat, but never really make it into the higher level. But here you have a player who's not only made it, but he's thriving in test cricket. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, he was a controversial pick when he was selected, you know, and... um, uh, I mean I remember seeing people uh, you, you always get this sort of overreaction on social media people saying they were going to boycott the team if they picked him in the test match
0: you know, <laughs> that,
1: that, why why are you picking this guy? It's only you know um I'm not going to watch if he's playing and then he picked up six wickets in his first match
0: um
1: you know and um you know well he had, he had I think he had six before lunch in his first match um you know and it was sort of like goodness me actually maybe he maybe he can play um uh, and and then you, you look through and, and he often opening the bowling for Auckland where, you know, Auckland play on Eden Park Outer Oval, which is um, is probably the roadiest road that's ever roaded. Um, you know, the, the uh, batsman...
0: <laughs> I'll have to trademark. Batsmen, You'll have to trademark that.
1: <laughs> batsman averaged something like 47 at Eden Park Outer Oval. Um, so you, you're playing there and he averaged 25 folding there. And you think, well, you know, you've got to actually be you know, in, in, in those same seasons where the bat was dominating. And you've got to say eventually you stop saying that it's because people are taking them lightly and think that maybe he's got some skill. Um, but it's it's the sort of subtle skill that I don't notice. And I remember Richie Beno once saying that that you want in your in your ideal team you've got finger spinners and, and medium pacers to get out batsmen and then fast bowlers and and leg spinners to get out tail enders. And he's definitely falls in that first category. He gets out, he gets out really good players rather than getting out the the bunnies. Um, But I, I I wouldn't back him to wrap up the tail. You know, his subtlety is, is just going to be lost on the guys at at the bottom. And I'll just hit him, hit him all around.
0: You did mention, um, G travel and how he has, uh, he's, he should be able to perhaps do okay in Australia. But uh, do you see, uh, in terms of the other batsmen, do you see any particular uh, weakness or strength or anything that uh, New Zealand should be wary about in terms of their batting in Australia?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think um, there's a few of our players who may well get found out a little bit by the extra pace. Uh, But, um, you know, we do have quick bowlers in New Zealand now, whereas we never really used to. Um, so, having Ferguson bowling in the nets and having Kugelheim bowling in the nets means that they're starting, Adam Mill means that players are starting to get used to facing that sort of pace. Um, and that that's certainly going to help. But um, traditionally, we've struggled on the bouncy up pitches um, in the past. We're a, a better team now than the ones that did struggle. But, um, you know, Australia are, are relentless. They've got so much quality that you just never you can never be, never relax. And, and a lot of our players have built their game on uh, seeing off the good ball and then punishing it when the bowlers get tired or when they give you the bad balls. And the Aussies don't tend to give you as many bad balls. You you have to actually hit the good ones. Um, and so that could be, uh, I mean, Williamson has no problem with that. And I think um, Nicholls showed when he played in the Big Bash that he was quite capable of, of handling the Australian pitchers and the Australian bowlers. Um, but... I think Ross Taylor might struggle. I think Tom Latham might struggle, um, and I think Colin de Grandhomme also probably his game doesn't isn't suited to those sort of pitches as well. I think Watling, uh, Latham, uh, Watling, Raval, Williamson, and Nichols are the three that have or the four that have the game that sort of is more suited to that sort of pitch and that sort of attack. But even then, you know that good bowlers will put you under a lot of pressure and and pressure causes people to make play silly shots and make bad decisions and it's all about trying to manage that pressure
0: it's going to be interesting to see the kind of pitches that they're going to roll out i think uh, perth when india played there uh, was a difficult pitch to bat on but of course i think this is a day night test so yeah. um it could be totally different and the conditions uh, could change depending on the evening And then, of course, you have uh, Melbourne and Sydney, and um, it'll be interesting to see that. Sorry, you were saying?
1: Yeah, look, day night test is exciting because we've got um, swing bowlers, and we know the the pink ball tends to swing for longer and swing further than the red ball does. So that's that's exciting. Um, The other thing that we've got, uh, a little bit of a secret weapon, is that the new groundsman in, in Melbourne is a Kiwi. Um, he or the curator, as they them, <laughs> um, and so he's not scared of putting a bit of grass on the wicket. He's not scared of sideways movement, and um, and so we may get a pitch that's a little more to our liking there than we would normally have got. Um, so certainly, I think could be trouble, uh, but hopefully, we tune all up when we get there.
0: <laughs> I did, I did see though, and I was quite baffled by this. Though perhaps I shouldn't be that New Zealand haven't played a Boxing Day test for 30 years or 30-plus years?
1: Yeah. yeah. And why, um,
0: why is that? Is it just they're not a good enough market? I mean, is it just not a marketing proposition that Australia haven't called them in? Because they've had some good teams in the interim.
1: Yeah, and we've had some close series too. But, yeah, it's, it's really down to the marketing. It's down to the fact that the Australian public uh, wants to see South Africa, they want to see India, they want to see England. And uh, until recently, they've wanted to see West Indies. Yeah, and I
0: think... we've
1: probably we've probably replaced West Indies in the team that Australia wants to watch. Um, and I think that's probably what's happened. So that's why we're getting it again. Um, but we, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, there are there are most of the players were not alive the last time we played a test in uh, in Sydney. Um, you know the, I think it was nineteen eighty three the last test that we played in sydney and when you think that there's there's over 100,000 kiwis living in sydney um that just seems madness from cricket australia to not put a put a test on there uh, until now but i mean you you got to say you know we have probably earned the right in 2012 2013 people were talking about that there should be a two tier test uh two tiers for TS Nations because New Zealand were just not competitive. Uh, Whereas I don't think anyone would be saying that now.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Nobody in terms of, uh, I think New Zealand are rightfully the number two team in the world. And, uh, you know, which is ahead of Australia, by the way, only India are ahead. And um, so coming to what I think is New Zealand's strongest suit and such a a good uh, bowling attack that they have that they're going to be taking to Australia uh, it was often said, I mean, Richard Hadley, it was often said, operated as a one-man army, though I don't know how much yeah. of that was uh <laughs> the, the the famous quote was the World Eleven at one
1: end and the Ilford Second Eleven at the other.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um you have uh one of the such a good balanced attack here. You have Bolt and Saudi, two of uh two really, really good bowlers whose careers have overlapped. You have uh, Wagner, who I think is one of the most fascinating bowlers in world cricket, Neil Wagner. Oh. <laughs> and then yep. you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, DeGronome as the all-rounder. You have Santner as the all-rounder. You have some good spinning options. Uh, really exciting for a tour of Australia to have this much depth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, it'll be interesting to see how much cricket Tim Southie gets mm-hmm. because um, probably quicker tracks... Uh, where the ball doesn't swing, he's not as effective. So he might play Perth and might not play anywhere else, or he might not even play Perth. Um, you know, the the selectors have made the made some tough decisions before about about the the balance of the team based on the conditions. Um, so you're saying Lockie
0: comes in for him in Perth?
1: Yeah, possibly, possibly Lockie comes in in Perth. Okay. Um, you know, and um, although if Trent Bolt is out. Then uh, that changes things again. You know, with with injury, we haven't. I haven't heard an update on on Bolt or De Grondham, and um, and De certainly with an ab strain. You know, that that's a sort of thing that can be three days or can be six months. So we, it'll be interesting to see how he pulls up. Um, but um, but yeah, if if Bolt's not fit, um, then I, I would I, I would expect that Lockie Ferguson would come in. Um, but they might they might continue their unfathomable love affair with Matt Henry. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I would I would hope that Lockie Ferguson would be playing uh, at least two of the tests in Australia. Um, if he plays all three, that would be uh, good. I mean, I know there's there's people say that you shouldn't debut players in Australia, but uh, Shane Bond and Trent balt and Danny Morrison and Chris and Lance Cairns all debuted against Australia, and they had pretty good careers. So John Bracewell as well debuted in Australia. So, you know, you you look at that and you say, well, actually, it hasn't seemed to hold players back when they've debuted in Australia. If they're good enough, that's a good place to do it.
0: Yeah, and given um, his first-class record, uh, it's not like he's coming in, uh, it's not like you're taking a punt on him. He has a proven record in first-class cricket, right? You said it's second only to Richard Hadley, or...
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's in that it's in that sort of it's in that sort of realm. I think Andre Adams also had a pretty good record and played only one test, um, but that was uh, I think there were off the ball reasons for that more than there were on field reasons. Um, but um, but you know the um, he's got a really good record and he's the sort of bowler that suits their sort of conditions. Um, but he's also the sort of bowler perhaps are a little bit used to, whereas Southie's is a bit different. Um, so you know there's there's arguments either way. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'd like to see him playing. I think he's got the. I think someone who can bowl consistently at one hundred and forty-five. I mean, he averages twenty overs an in innings for Auckland. Um, so it's not like he just comes in and bowls a, a short spell and he's done. He's he's able to get through the overs, um, and he bowls he bowls quickly consistently. He doesn't let up. It's not like a lot of fast bowlers. And I mean, Geoff, Geoffrey Archer was an example that he bowls quick spells, but he also bowls spells that aren't that fast. Um, he's not like that. He's just consistently quick and he's consistently at you and he's consistently building pressure. Um, and I think that's the sort of bowling that we need against Australia. You need to just not let them have that mental rest. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'd like to see him there. Um, I could see, I mean, it... Talking about dropping Tim Southey when he's been averaging 23 or something in the last three years sounds ridiculous, but it's not a case of dropping him. It's a case of picking the best players.
0: How uh, uh, big a blow would it be if uh, Bolt were to miss uh, a part of the series or the whole series? Uh, Given New Zealand have the depth, but still Trent Bolt has been such a phenomenal performer for them for a while, right?
1: I, I think the bowler we'd miss the most would be Neil Wagner. I think if we miss, uh, Trent Bolt would be a blow, um, but I think Neil Wagner's the guy who we would really struggle to replace because what he does is hard to replicate. It's, um, so t- got talk about to that. Let's talk
0: ball. about that. What does he do? How does he do it? We have a question from a listener who says, how the hell does Wagner get five fours on wickets where most others don't want to bowl? <laughs>
1: Um, he, I guess there's two things that he does. One is that he's got a, a, a left arm angle and the ability to make very, very subtle changes with bowling the ball in roughly the same place and having it arrive in a different place. And secondly, he keeps doing it. Um, so you, I, there was a really good graphic in the, in the Abu Dhabi sort of match where he'd pitched uh, about a dozen deliveries all you know, in maybe a, a, a folded-out handkerchief sort of space, uh, difference in, in like when they bounce. So all pitching roughly the same place. And um, they ended up uh, arriving at all sorts of different places. One of them came through at knee-high. One of them was over the head height. Some of them were down the offside. Some of them were down the leg side. Um, so the batsman, you can't know until quite late like where the ball's going to go, so you've got less time to react to it. He was quick enough that that less time doesn't give you much time at all, and um, and he will keep doing it for 13 overs or 14 overs. You just don't get a rest. He just keeps going at you, and he's got incredible fitness and, and stamina, and, and it's almost, um, you know, you look at it, it's almost unnatural, the, the, the fitness that he has and the ability to keep bowling and, and how he manages to motivate himself to just bowl another over of, of really intense, cricket and then another over and then another over and then another over. And you, you sort of think back to Mitchell Johnson and Macram that when they, that left arm angle um, for a bouncer is really hard to play and really that the ball coming from that angle um, and, and you, those two both hit a lot of batsmen. Uh, Neil Wagner's probably hit more batsmen per match than either of them did. And the reason is just because he keeps doing it. He keeps bowling those bouncers and eventually you, you've got to either play them or get out of the road. And if you play them, you're eventually going to get one wrong. And if you get out of the road, you're eventually going to get one wrong, and you're going to wear it. Um, and and he just, he, <laughs> there's so much that you make one little mistake, he's gonna he's going to be at you. And and that's why people use their bat to try and defend the ball off and get caught.
0: And in terms of, I mean, you uh, even the variations, right? I mean, he's he's he just uh, does enough. He's not uh, doing he's not bowling every ball different, but there's always that one or two balls that he will change the angle a bit. He'll change the, the, the seam will uh, prob- come out a little more scrambled. There'll be some little subtle change that'll catch the bo- batsman off guard, right?
1: Yeah, well, the, from what I've noticed, and I'm, you know, I, I'm not an expert and I'm watching on TV mostly rather than, than with the, 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 the really good analysis equipment that some of the guys have, but I've noticed involving a leg cutter bouncer. I'm noticing a, a sort of a quick bouncer and a bouncer that's not quite as quick, and so that three sort of variations means that the the one and then and then there's the natural variation of the pitch and 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 he moves around the crease a little bit. So effectively, it means that there's quite a lot of different alternatives as to how the ball's going to come at them, and he's hit quite a few batsmen with the the leg cutter bouncer that sort of um, goes away slightly or you know sort of. Um, I guess, you know, that it sort of looks like it's going to pass down the leg side and then it moves. And so the batsman who's swayed inside it's suddenly getting hit by it. Um, that seems to be a really effective delivery. But it is, I mean, part of it is just that if you keep banging the ball in the pitch, it's going to do slightly different things because the pitch isn't going to behave exactly the same every time.
0: Uh, uh, one of our, um, <clears throat> yeah, part of our team, maybe one of our uh, team members, Ashoka, he had pointed out that uh, Wagner does get a lot of credit for the amount of spells he bowls and how much he bowls. But Trent, Bolt and Saudi have actually bowled pretty comparably in terms of the number of overs that they've uh, played since 2017. Like if you look over the last three years, Bolt has bowled most number of overs, Wagner is second on the list and then Saudi is third, but Saudi's played a couple of fewer games. So actually they've all perhaps bowled similar amounts.
1: Yeah, I think the difference there is that um, Bolton-Southi bowl with the new ball and then the second new ball mm-hmm. and then a spell in the middle. Whereas Wagner doesn't bowl with the new ball, so he's got, he's got a 60-over window to fit his, his overs in, uh, whereas the others have, I guess, a 90-over window to fit their overs in. Um, so he gets fewer breaks in between. Is is effectively what that means that they bowl at the start of the day and the end of the day and then once in the middle, whereas he bowls two long spells either side of their one in the middle. Interesting. Uh, if that
0: makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, so, and even uh, and and uh, there was a piece in Crickinfo recently that mentioned how uh, he often bowls uh, between the 60th and the 80th overs, uh, where, yep. where bat- batting sides are usually trying to cash in, but then you have this bowler come in and go bang 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 every ball and you. It's very tough to even get it away
1: yeah well I, and it's and the, and the, I guess one of the great skills is the fact that he can keep it at armpit level, so mm-hmm. it 's not high enough that he gets his one for the over, um, but it 's high enough that it 's very difficult to play um, you know and and it was something that Shane Bond used to do was to 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 go to the bouncers with the older ball, and and it was a uh, a strategy that he used and Wagner basically, and I think it was when Shane Bond was coaching that he started doing it, that, that just just moved to the bouncer level but do, do it as plan A um, and then he's got his plan B of the bowling, you know, he was he was actually a very handy swing bowler when he started um, you know, that, that's not his it, it's not how he made his name in New Zealand was for bowling the bouncers, it was for bowling left arm swing and and, and knocking people's stumps over there's, that, I, there's a video out there of him taking five wickets and five balls and from memory, there was one caught and four bowled. Um, you know, he was able to get under the bat and get between bat and pad quite often. Um, and 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 that's now really it was almost Plan C for him now. That that the the approach that, that got him is uh, made his name to start with. So he he is he's got a lot more variation and a lot more ability than perhaps. People realize because the highlights on the highlights you see the bounces, you don't necessarily see the other deliveries. Um, But, but length balls or the the sort of back of a length ball is the one that he actually takes most of his wickets with.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing him bowl in Australia as well as uh, against India. I think that will be a terrific series as well. It's a shame it's just two tests, but um, uh, it's fine, it's something. It's in fact, uh, they haven't played in a while. Uh, they haven't played tests in a while, so it's good that they're finally playing. But um, looking at the big picture, um, I know that they have the two big, two really big tests coming up. But do you see this as this New Zealand team as challenging some of the great New Zealand teams of the past in in terms of uh, all time?
1: Oh, this is for me the best team New Zealand's ever put out. Um, you know whether or not it's under McCullum or under Williamson. Um, which one was was better? Whether you know adding Henry Nicholson and taking out Brendan McCullum has made the team better or worse? Um, you know, it, but I think um, I think this is the best side we've had right now. Um, you know, you look at the teams of the '80s and and they were a good team. Um, you know, and the team under Stephen Fleming, we had a good run there for a little while, with uh, particularly when Shane Bond and Daniel Vittori were playing together. Um, uh Vittori when bowling you know, having pressure at the other end makes a big difference. When Vittori was playing with Bond, he averaged more uh, averaged less than one when he was playing with McGrath. So the the difference of having pressure makes a very big difference to a, a bowler. And and that's that's one of the advantages that we've got now is that you there's there's players creating pressure all over the place. Um but um but you know, I, I think this is our best era and I think uh What we need is a is a a headline grabbing uh, marquee series, and one of these next two. If if we win one of these next two series, that's the thing that would really seal it for most New Zealanders that this is a genuinely great side um, that we managed to beat either India or Australia. In Australia, you know, in this era, we would have to actually say this is this is a team as good as Richard Hadley's team of the eighties. I look at these. Next two tests and think if we these next two series and think if, if we can get about a hundred and hundred and twenty points maybe combined between the two of them, that puts us in a pretty good position with matches up against Bangladesh and West Indies to round out the and I think home series against Pakistan for memory. Um, that that, um, that with that being the rest of our lineup, we've got a, we're putting ourselves in a pretty strong position to actually make the final. If we can get some if we can get some reasonable points out of both of these, uh, Australia and India, um, that puts us in a, in a pretty strong position to make the final. Um, so this is the these next two series are crucial for the World Test Championship for New Zealand. Um, and and you know, the more points we can take off Australia, the better um, as far as that goes, because they're going to be shaping up as uh, you know, at the moment as if they're going to be the the major competition for us for that second spot.
0: Absolutely. So on that note, let's, uh, I I mean, I'm really, really excited about uh, the New Zealand-Australia series as well as the India-New Zealand series. And uh, let's hope that uh, we can see some good cricket there. Uh, They've had some lopsided results of late, but I think uh, these two could produce some uh, close tests. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for all your insight. And uh, we rarely get to hear much uh, from uh, New Zealand and uh, also in the mainstream don't get to read as much of uh, in-depth pieces apart from people like you but uh, thank you thank you for coming and joining and helping us uh, understand the team and uh, what we can expect
1: you're welcome it's been great
0: yep and uh we'll uh, hopefully uh we'll catch up with you at some point um maybe after new zealand win the series against australia we can then talk about the india series at some, uh, before that yeah that sounds good <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thank you. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India